Well, good morning, church family. Our scripture reading will be taken today from the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. It's a little bit different from our church Bible, the NIV, the New International Version. If you want to follow on the NIV, um, it's on page 827, page 827. Um, I do have these verses uh, on your outline and also have them on the screen behind me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is God's word. They've been called the greatest generation. And this past week in our community, Champagne saw the joy of World War II veterans who participated in honor flight. Do you remember uh, reading about that in the news? Uh, amen. Yes. Amen. Wow. All right. 75 World War II veterans uh, were treated to a day in Washington, D.C. They flew out uh, from Willard and spent the entire day and flew back. And it was a one-day trip to see their memorial, the World War II memorial, as well as other memorials. And as I thought about the honor flight and uh, what happened this week and the recognition shown to uh, our veterans, I'm reminded of their heroism and service and especially reminded of a particular story which concerns a dramatic rescue mission that took place in the Pacific. It happened on January the 28th, 1945, 121 hand-selected army rangers went behind enemy lines uh, for a rescue of over 500 British and American POWs who themselves had been enslaved for three years in a prison camp near the city of Cabanatuan. It was called the Great Raid, and when this raid actually took place, the moment of the liberation of these POWs, uh, the first emotion that they felt was not joy and delight. The first emotion that they felt was rather chaos and fear. They had been in bondage so long 
Their minds were so psychologically fragile, they just couldn't wrap their brains around what was going on at the very moment of their liberation. And in fact, some of those POWs actually scurried away from their rescuers. One particular POW, a soldier by the name of Burt Bank, refused to budge. I mean, the liberators came. They were ready to take them, and he would not move. Even when a ranger walked right up to him, grabbed his arm, tugged, come on, we're here to save you, run for the gate. But Bank still wouldn't move. And the ranger looked into his eyes, and he saw why. There was nothing there. Nothing was registering. His eyes were vacant. And the rescuing ranger finally said, what's wrong with you? Don't you want freedom? And when he said that word, freedom, Bert woke up. And he was rescued. His stunned disbelief gave way to soaring optimism. That reminds me of what happened to the disciples the day Christ rose. Don't you remember? They first heard the witnesses, I've seen the Lord. And yet their response was one of like doubt, fear, chaos. What's going on here? Was this, was this news too good to be true? And yet, and yet as the depth of that truth sank into their souls, their stunned disbelief gave way to soaring optimism. They'd indeed been rescued. Well, our scripture today tells about a rescue. The Apostle Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, spoke of a daring rescue that took place, the, the, the greatest raid ever. He says that when we were dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, enslaved and addicted to the dominion of darkness, we were under the influence and control of three powerful conspirators, three hostile captors. You can see who they are in verses one through three. The world, the prince, the prince of the power of the air. The world, the prince, and the flesh held us in captivity, in bondage, in darkness. We could not escape. We were dead. And even if we wanted to escape, we couldn't. We were unable. And at that moment, Paul says, something happened. God acted. He staged a raid, a rescue And so what Paul's point is for us here in these verses this morning is just simply this. It's one sentence. When we were dead in sin, God saved us. He saved us because he loved us so that he could display his glory through us. And I want to talk about uh, just each of those phrases this morning, beginning with when we were dead in our sin God saved us. He saved us. Now, what does that mean, God saved us? Well, look at verses 5 and 6. The answer's there. 
In verses 5 and 6, says, uh, it says that he made us alive with Christ. He raised us with Christ. He seated us with Christ. In fact, those verbs describe what happened to Jesus. And Paul uses those verbs in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Well, now that's true of us. So we don't, see, the vision of this church is not being a life-changing community that passionately admires Christ. That's, that's not our direction. That's not our vision. Our, or, or, or to be a life-changing community that thinks highly of Christ. <laughs> that's not what Paul says. Paul says... That we're joined with Christ. Paul says that what's true of Christ is true of us. He's made us alive with Christ because Christ is alive. He's raised us with Christ because Christ has been raised. He's seated Christ. We've been seated. What's true of him is true of us. Because Christ reigns, now we reign. In fact, so certain is the Bible's promise of this. In God's mind, it's as if it's already happened. It's a done deal. We share in Christ's life. And this is so important for us to get and understand. Because so many have such a wrong story about Christianity. They do. What do you mean by that? Well, some people have a story of Christianity that sounds like this. You know, once upon a time in a continent like Africa, there was this really decent, hardworking, moral young man who lived in this corrupt country and in a nation so bad off it couldn't support itself. And so news of this travesty cried out to a rich company in America. And this company responded by flying in a private jet and picking up this really good, really decent, really moral, hardworking person, and then flying this person to their new home in America, where this person's now safe. This person's now in America. And now this person become a doctor, and a lawyer, and a master carpenter, and a plumber, and, and a professional golfer, all in one, not to leave out being a gourmet chef. This person's face is plastered all over the news and now this person has become a symbol of hope for those left behind isn't that good news not really you know why because nothing's changed back home that's why all that happened was the removal of this one guy from a cesspool everybody watched this one guy fly to safety while they continue to suffer meanwhile meanwhile aid workers continue in that corrupt country, doing good, hosting weekends of service, trying hard, getting together once a week, singing a little bit to encourage each other and having some hot coffee, and trying, committing themselves to the painstaking steps of rebuilding this country, knowing that it's, you know, it's a three steps forward, 22 steps backward deal, but we're just going to give it the old college try and Let's sing the alma mater and don't forget to say when you get to Illinois. And, you know, <laughs> so everybody, let's get to work. That's not good news. It's not. 
The good news is this. In Christ, God launched D-Day. Jesus Christ has invaded and raided Satan's domain. And in his death, burial, and resurrection, Christ has stripped Satan of his power. The work of the cross has dethroned a cruel and illegitimate ruler and has seated a loving, legitimate one, the very Son of God. That's exactly what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities... He, that's Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I mean, this is warfare language. You say, why warfare language? Well, just because, because Paul wrote in the first century, and he's talking to people who would have been encouraged by that very news. Paul himself is in prison when he wrote this letter. He is chained to a Roman guard And these Ephesians, maybe they began to wonder, well, just how powerful is this Jesus? Because their culture, the Roman Empire, was an idol-infested culture. And, and, And also their culture had emperor worship, where temples were dedicated, facilities were dedicated to these these emperors. One might wonder, well, you know, okay, who's the real God? One God's playing off another God, and who's in charge? And Paul's response is absolutely crystal clear. Christ is. Christ is. His is the name that is above all names. And Satan's dominion has been overthrown. You know, this week, the visible world has witnessed the demise of a tyrannical dictator. I mean, the guy's body's plastered all over the media. There's no doubt about it. And I tell you, in the unseen world of the heavenly realms, a very visible overthrow has been witnessed and seen, to which the apostle John testifies in Revelation 12, 10. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. And get this, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. There's the overthrow. Satan has been triumphed. And how? Look. Verse 11 of Revelation 12, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. By the blood of the Lamb. How how does that work? You know? I know you you wonder that. How how does the cross defeat evil? I, I don't get that. I know. I know. Here's how. God wins... By losing. That's how. And Satan loses by winning. You see? You say, well, that, that's, that, that, that's not right. Well, yes, it is. Yeah, we, we've just been... See, we've, this just shows that... This just so, shows how long we've been in bondage, right? How long we've been in a, this dominion of darkness. You see, 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 the way the dominion of darkness works is this. You know, you, 
See, how do you win in the dominion of darkness? Well, you win by winning. That's how. You triumph by triumphing. You, you get the victory by being victorious. You, you get things done by manipulation or domination. And if we got to step on people or we've got to do an end around or we've got to backstab them, then we just do it. You win by winning. That, and, 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 and that means that someone has to lose. And if someone's going to have to lose, it better be you than me. Because I don't want to be a loser. I want to be a winner. That's how it works in the dominion of darkness. How's that working in your marriage? I want to win by winning in my marriage. Really? Oh, really? How's that working for you? Huh? What about your friendships? How's that work? How's that working out? I just love my friend. Why? Oh, because my friend dominates me. Really? <laughs> and you like this. You know what? We really don't. It's not God's way. It's not. God's way, God's way comes in humility. God's way comes in kindness. God's way comes in mercy. Jesus himself said in Mark 8, 35, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. And the cross was the ultimate loss. And yet in this loss, Christ destroyed evil. And you may ask yourself, okay, well, I know Randy, but why does life still feel like a POW camp? Oh, that's a fair question. Here's why. Revelation, Reve, Revelation 12 helps us understand why. We just got to keep reading here. I read verses 10 and 11. Let's go to verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. And here's why. Because he knows that his time is short. And that's why. He's a desperate, demonic maniac who's going down and he's going to try to take out everybody. The death blow has been given and it was accomplished by the cross. You know, when the World War II POWs learned of the Allied invasions in Europe and in the Pacific, on the one hand, their situation didn't change but on the other hand, everything changed. Mentally, emotionally, psychologically, it was a whole new day because they knew, they knew that they had won. And that's true for us. God has saved us. He's saved us. He's raised us. He has seated us, and that means, we're, that means to be seated means we're going to be on thrones. That's what that means. We're heirs of his kingdom. And can I just share two very important you know, implications of this truth here before we move on? The first is this. The first is this. There aren't many paths to God. There's just one. There's just one. The resurrection has confirmed Christ as the supreme ruler of the universe. Uh, if I've said it before, I'll say it again. 
the resurrection is everything. It's everything. He who rises from the dead gets to make the rules. Okay? This is what we believe. And so, you know, and so we don't have to be bothered when we get criticized for this exclusive claim. We don't, you know. People say, well, I'm offended when you say that Jesus is the only way because I believe that all truths lead to God and, 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 and you know, no religion is better than the rest. And, and my response to that is, well, just wait, hold on, hold on just a moment there. When you say that, aren't you assuming a view of God by faith? And aren't you pushing that as better than the rest? You know, why, why should your view, a, a very white, very northern European view, by the way, be privileged above all else. Huh? You know, when you say that, at best, you're inconsistent, and at worst, you're hypocritical. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we say, okay, prove it. And he got up. <laughs> That's how he proved it. And you know what? You're going to get up. That's what it means. He saved you. He saved you. He's raised you. He seated you. The second implication is this. If God has made us alive, if he's raised us and seated us with Christ, these questions are very important. Questions like, so then which dominion best defines my life? The prince of the power of the air or the prince of peace? If God saved me, why in the world would I want to go back to darkness? If, if I were to do a fearless moral inventory of my life, what would be seen? That, that my allegiance is in fact to Christ the King, His kingdom? Or am I flirting with the darkness? Why, why, why would I ever want to look to the dominion of darkness for my sense of self-worth and well-being furthermore what secrets in my life reveal an allegiance to an enemy whose time is short the fact is god did not send his son to save a people so that having been saved they might do a u-turn and return to the darkness that's not why you've been redeemed you've been redeemed to live as children of light that's what ephesians 5 11 says live as children of of light and find out what pleases the Lord in the dominion of darkness. All we did was find out what pleased Satan, but in the dominion of light, Jesus is king. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Rather, expose them. Why? Because you've been saved. Saved and raised and seated. That's what that means. Now the why. Why would God do this? What could possibly motivate him to save us? And the scripture is clear, isn't it? God saved us because he loved us. He loved us, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy. But God, verse 4, because of the great love with which he loved us. It doesn't just say, but God who loved us. It says, but God because of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 7, but God, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God saved us because he loved us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one can boast. You see, the gospel in four words is this. I will give you. I will give. Jesus said, you come to me and I will give you. We say, Lord, I can't give you anything. He doesn't want anything. He wants to give you. Our our relationship with God, our salvation, belonging to the dominion of light is not about what we give to God. It's about what he gives to us. And I'm telling you, that is life-changing news. It was life-changing news to these Christians in Ephesus who lived in a quid pro quo Roman culture. See, they lived in a, they lived in a you, you know, uh, I'm going to take care of you, you take care of me, kind of a patron culture. And so the question was, how can I benefit from this God? How can I get this God to make my land fertile or my cattle fertile or my crops productive? And, or what can I do to keep this God from striking me with some sort of punishment? But the gospel is not a quid pro quo deal. It's not a, you do this for me and I'll do this for you. The gospel is, I will give you. It's gift. It's based on the self-sacrificial gift of God. Please get this. In Christ, there is nothing, nothing that you can do that would make him love you more. And there's nothing that you've done that makes him love you less. It's gift. Now, you get that? Well, good. Get it, got it, good. There's two tests, two questions to see if you have gotten it. And the first is this. Do you run away from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room when you've blown it? Or do you just go into the throne room with confidence and trust? You know, if you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't know the gospel. You don't. And the fact of the matter is, you are most offensive to God when you come to him with all of your efforts and when you're still trying to earn what he's freely given. That's when you're most offensive to God. And the second question is this. How do you treat others when they offend you? You make them grovel. You hold them in contempt. You harbor bitterness against them. What souvenirs or trophies from Satan's dominion still sit on your mantle shelf? Paul says get rid of it. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave 
you. He forgave you because he loves you. He saved me because he loves me. And, and, and to what end? To what end? See, some, sometimes we get the mistaken idea that, you know, okay, we're, we, well, you know, Jesus is in my life, and so now it's, I get to go to heaven. It's kind of like this, you know, eternal club med experience that I'm going to get somewhere out there, but I'm going to go on to my day-to-day business, but I know that's taken care of whenever that's going to be. Checklist, let's move on. No! No, that's not. You see, there, there's an end game here, and the end game, Paul tells us in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, he saved us. Why? Because he loved us. So that he could display his glory through us. You remember that magnificent statue, uh, Michelangelo, of David? Michelangelo's David. It's, it's, it's towering, you know, like 15, 17 feet. I mean, it, it, it's mammoth. And, and it had been a once discarded and damaged marble piece of block that was just been kind of forgotten and, and ruined by exposure. But, but Michelangelo got his hands on it and this magnificent masterpiece, this statue just, when you, when you walk into, uh, you know, where it is, and, I mean, people don't ask, who is that? They don't ask, who is that? You know what they ask? They ask, who made that? Who made that? And once we walked in sin, you see that in verses 1 and 2? Ephesians said, once we were involved in a death walk in sin, but God, because he loved us, he saved us, now... We are in a resurrection walk of his workmanship. Of his workmanship. Literally, literally, that word workmanship is God's work of art. We're God's work of art. Uh, uh, the uh, New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek language, and that word workmanship in the Greek, it, it transliterates into our English word. It's the word poem. You are God's poem. You're God's poem, a poem of service, a poem of music, a, 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 a poem of ministry, a poem of singing, a poem of engineering. Who would have thought that engineers could be poets? Well, God did. God did. And about a month ago, God's poetry was written all over this community through the weekend of service and I still keep getting, you know what? I still keep getting uh, letters and thank yous from the project sites of the places uh, where God served, where we served, and what an encouragement it is. You know what? You know what? They think we did this. But we know better, don't we? God showed up, and He showed up through you, He showed up through your gifts and abilities and he's still showing up you know and he's going to continue to show up between now and the end of the year and he's going to be showing he's going to be you know what god's going to be going to the grocery store this week and he's going to be meeting needs with love by filling up the brown grocery bags and bringing them back to the gathering facility here so that those who are hungry can no longer be hungry 
And people are going to say, well, who did that? See, who did that? Well, God did that. That's who did that. And in the coming weeks, why, in your bulletin here today, you've got an insert about uh, Operation Christmas Child, and meeting needs with love so that, that children can have some joy in Christmas. And, and that's going to be an incredible opportunity, a lavish display of love. And people are going to say, who did that? Well, God did that. God did that. And he's continuing to do that through his people. He's showing up and blessing our community. And speaking of statue, speaking of Michelangelo's statue, did you see the statue that's out in the foyer today? Did you see that? Huh? That that blue-framed statue? That's what that is. It's a statue. It's a work of art. And it's a work of art that God is doing through Healing Waters Ministry as he is meeting needs with love by providing clean water. And those of you who support a Compassionate International child will be encouraged because there have been some sites where, where, uh, like in the Dominican Republic, Guatemala, where where the country where your child that you're supporting is, my goodness, they're having clean drinking water. What would we just take for granted? We just flip on the tap and there it is. But that statue, that statue is meeting needs with love. Ed uh, Anderson from Healing Waters Ministry is going to be out in the foyer. And I had the privilege of meeting him last night. And uh, everybody turn around and say, hi, Ed. Hi, Ed. (laughs) I'm just telling you, you know... Look, heaven's not a timeshare, <laughs> okay? It's, it's going to be doing for all eternity what we have been designed to do and are doing right now, worshiping and serving. And in the new heavens and the new earth, with new bodies, no sin, no evil, no death, no suffering, no tears, I mean, as filled as we were in the weekend of service, as passionate as I see in the life of someone like Ed as I heard his story last night at Dwayne and Therese Cooper's home. I I mean, if that's how it is and we have frail bodies and a broken world, think about what it's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. See, that's our destiny, church family. That's why we talk about a life-changing community, passionately pursuing Christ, making much of Him. We have been joined with Him, and now He wants to display us to this broken world. And you know why, don't you? Because not everybody's been rescued from the POW camp. You know that, don't you? You're going to be going back to your home or to your work, and you are going to be, you're going to be meeting Bert tomorrow. And Bert has got this glaze over his eyes. Bert lives like God doesn't exist. 
but you do, we do, and so that doesn't make us a POW, that makes us a counterinsurgent, and our mission is to wake Bert up, and we do that with the gospel, we do that by speaking the gospel, we do that by living the gospel. And that's done because God works through us. And I want to tell you, I'm just encouraged and privileged to be your pastor because I think you get it. I think you get it. And I guess what I want to say is keep getting it. Keep getting it. You live like you are joined with Him, okay? Because you see, it works the other way too. He was joined to us. Jesus said, I will give you, and He gave us His righteousness. And the fact of the matter is, we did give Him something. We gave Him our sin. We gave Him our filth. We gave Him our unrighteousness. And when we gather around this communion table, we remember that great raid. We remember that rescue. And we, it was a great raid and a great trade. And because of that, we're with him. Amen?